Today we start this new sermon series on John's gospel, and so I encourage you to uh, read this gospel on your own. And if you want a book that will help you study it, uh, I would recommend, I don't have a copy with me, but I would recommend Adam Hamilton's book called uh, John, the Gospel of Light and Life. And we have some uh, in our bookstore, and you can also get it on uh, a little website called Amazon if you'd like to order it there as well. Um, you might recall that we looked at John's Gospel on the final uh, Sunday of Advent, just before uh, Christmas. And, and in that first chapter, at the very beginning, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being through him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This is certainly one of the most beautiful and poetic openings of any of the Gospels. As we begin this series today, let me give you a, just an overview, a snapshot of John's Gospel as we launch in. Because John's Gospel, as we know, is, is different from the other Gospels. John is often called the fourth Gospel. Um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. So John's the fourth gospel. It, it appears fourth in the canon, but it's different from the Synoptic Gospels. Most scholars agree that John was written by St. John the Apostle, um, the disciple whom Jesus loved somewhere around the end of the first century, 85 to 100 uh, CE, and, and they think that John was in Ephesus when he wrote the gospel. Now, in addition to the Gospel of John, scholars would say that John also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. The purpose of John's Gospel is actually stated explicitly in chapter 20, where John says, These are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. John writes in chapter 1, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And then we have that, that beautiful verse, 14, The word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and full of truth. And we celebrated Christ's birth. Uh, just a few weeks ago, and we're still celebrating it in the Christian tradition. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, Jesus calls people to follow him, but in John's gospel, Jesus calls people to believe in him and to follow him. The synoptic gospels seem to be more focused on the historical accounts of Jesus's life, but John's gospel has always been viewed as the most spiritual of the gospels. The basic themes of John's gospel include a focus on the Trinity, Contrasting realities such as darkness and light, flesh and spirit, old and new, the heavenly realm and the world, uh, the theme of love, the Holy Spirit, signs and miracles, the identity of Jesus. And it's only in John's gospel that we find the I am uh, sayings of Jesus. And you know, and you're familiar with these, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And as we read in John's gospel, we should pay close attention. 
while studying it, to the details and to the many metaphors that are present throughout this, uh, this amazing book. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus' public ministry fits into basically one year, a little over a year, but in John's Gospel, it covers three to four years. In the Synoptic Gospels, most of Jesus' ministry occurs in Galilee, but in John's Gospel, most of the accounts are in Judea and Jerusalem. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus teaches us in parables and short sayings, but in John's Gospel, we find longer and deeper theological discourses. John's Gospel is, is beautiful, it's poetic, and it's a very meaningful way to study the life of Jesus. So I encourage you to read it and, and to study it. And so that gives you just a, a basic snapshot of the fourth gospel. Now today we're looking at the inaugural scene, chapter 2, that happens at a wedding scene in Cana of Galilee. Jesus is at a wedding with his disciples and also with his mother Mary. Now in that day, weddings were a very uh, big deal. Uh, and they would last for a few days, sometimes even, uh, even a week. Uh, in fact, I remember Carly and Jeff's wedding in Memphis. Uh, Carl throws a good party. We had a good time down there. But weddings are still a big deal for families, right? Uh, these are special occasions in the life of a family. But in Cana, they would last for multiple days, sometimes even uh, for an entire week. And Cana was a peasant village, so most of the people in Cana were peasants, and they lived very meager lives. But when you had a wedding, they would roll out the carpet, and there would be wine and food and all kinds of uh, things to partake in. And so just like uh, for us today, when we have a wedding, we celebrate, and it's, uh, it is exciting. But John uses this as the inaugural scene of the gospel for a good reason. Here's what happens. <clears throat> they run out of wine. You guys ever been to a party that uh, ran out of alcohol? It winds down pretty quickly sometimes, right? Unless somebody goes to the store, makes a run. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus responds to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? Now, if any of us answered to our wives or our mothers that way, we would be smacked. But Mary then says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And the passage tells us that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, and each had 20 to 30 gallons of water in them. This was used for the washing of feet, the washing of hands, the, the rites of uh, purification. And Jesus tells them, draw some of the water out and take it to the chief steward. And, and so they did that, and when they took, took it to the chief steward, lo and behold, the water had turned to wine. And not just any wine, but good wine. Now nobody at the wedding knew where the wine had come from, only the servants. But they take it to the bridegroom and they say, everyone usually serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests are drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. What is this all about? Megan and I went to um, Napa Valley last January, a year ago, to celebrate the 40th birthday of a, a close friend, a college friend from TCU. Uh, Napa Valley is in Northern California, right by San Francisco. It's beautiful. It's called wine country. But have you ever toured uh, the wineries with people who think that they know everything there is to know about wine? Uh, they'll bring out some wine and they'll serve it to everybody. And then you know, there's always somebody that's like, no, 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 that's not very good. And, um, and you're like, really? That tastes pretty good, right? <laughs> It's usually the same person that when the group goes to dinner, 
um, and you're going to split the check five ways. Let's say you have uh, 10 people, you know, five couples. You're going to split the check five ways, and they know everybody's going to pay the same thing. So they ask for the wine menu, and they order the $260 bottle of uh, Cabernet. And, you know, you're sitting there like, hey, I, you know, what's wrong with Mayomi? I really, we could have seven Mayomis for you, the wine you just ordered, right? <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are looking at me like, hey, that's me at the restaurant. Be quiet. <laughs> But the wine industry is a massive industry, and since antiquity, wine has played a role, a very important role, in social occasions, including in the time of Jesus. So drinking wine was very common. And so to be honest with you, I've really never understood the Christian concept of teetotaling, the idea that you're not supposed to drink. Um, it's never made sense to me if you read the Bible. Uh, wine is everywhere. Um, and you guys have heard all the jokes, you know, you invite one Baptist with you to go fishing, he drinks all your beer, you invite two Baptists, they drink none of your beer, you've heard that one? Uh, you've, where there are three or four Episcopalians gathered, there's bound to be a fifth, get it? <laughs> okay, I'll stop. But I've never understood this idea of teetotaling because Jesus' very first miracle in the Gospel of John was changing water into wine at a wedding. And it was late in the party. So clearly he wanted the party to go on, to not end. And more than that, he turned the water into good wine. Both of my grandfathers were teetotalers. One was a preacher, one was a businessman. Um, they didn't drink at all. On my mom's side, my grandmother did drink, and I remember that they would come to Memphis uh, from Paris, Tennessee to visit, and the first thing my grandmother would do is ask my dad to make her a cocktail, um, and, and my dad would do that, and then one time, it was very awkward, my grandfather walked over to my father and said, stop trying to get my wife drunk, and um, he said, you know, she asked for a drink, she asked for a cocktail, talk to her. Now, I do know this. Alcoholism is real, and it's a problem in many families. And I have recovered alcoholics in my family. Many of you have recovered alcoholics in your family. Sometimes people get to a place where they realize that they don't need to drink alcohol because it causes too many problems. And so they stop, and sometimes when they do that, they save their own life, they save their own marriage, they save their own family. And that's a good thing. Moderation is a word that gets thrown around, you know, everything in moderation, but sometimes people have a hard time knowing where to draw that line. And some people's definition of moderation is interesting. Uh, sometimes I think it's healthy to ask yourself, could I stop for a month? And if not, is that a problem? Those are fair questions to ask. You know, people will ask me, they've always asked me, as long as I've been a pastor, can, can people in your church drink and smoke and dance? And some of you have heard the answer that I give. I say, well, some of them can, some of them can't. Um, and you say, well, what does that mean? I said, well, look out on the dance floor. Some of them can dance, some of them can't. Watch them when they drink alcohol. Some of them can hold their alcohol, some of them can't. The bottom line is everybody has to determine for themselves what is healthy and what is moderation and what balance looks like. And wine and alcohol is a nice way to relax and to celebrate and to enjoy life. But like anything else, it can get out of control. It can become addictive. Now back to this miracle. I can't explain to you exactly how Jesus changed water into wine. 
That's why it's called a miracle. But I do think that in John's gospel, there is always a much deeper meaning and symbolism behind these miracles. So let's ask the question, why does John make this event the inaugural event in the gospel? And this is where I find guys like Adam Hamilton and uh, Marcus Borg and N.T. Wright incredibly helpful. First, I'll leave you with two thoughts. First, in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, it was the Bible before the New Testament came along, right? Wine is often used as a metaphor or a sign of blessing and goodness and joy. That's why it's always a part of celebrations and happy occasions. And so we can say that this is the first miracle because it is symbolic of the life that Jesus offers to us. A life of joy, a life of peace and hope and love. A life that is full of blessings. Adam Hamilton says when you choose to come to Christ, you find a life that is full of those qualities. And it's better than the life that you had before. So when Jesus took water and turned it into wine, he showed, uh, he showed to us that he can take what is ordinary and make it extraordinary. And some of us need to stop thinking of our lives as just ordinary because we feel let down and we feel bored. When we decide to follow Christ and we do that seriously, our lives can be changed and we can leave behind our old ways, our old habits, unhealthy behaviors that can drag us down. We can leave behind a chapter that may be ended or a chapter that wasn't healthy to begin with. And Christ can give us new beginnings, which is greater than anything we've ever experienced before. But guess what? Discipleship takes work. It takes intentionality, sacrifice, commitment. This is what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights in the formation class. It takes effort, but it's always worth it. And we can leave our old lives behind and we can start a brand new life. And some of us here this morning, as we start 2020, we need that. We need a new start. We need a new pattern of behavior. We need some new friends. We need a new attitude and perspective. Uh, and Christ can give that to us, I promise you. And what better time than the new year to make that happen? Second thought that I'll leave you with this morning. I think this inaugural scene in John's gospel gives us greater insight and meaning into the overall story of Jesus. His message, his life, his ministry, his teachings. What does that mean? I give Marcus Borg some credit with helping me think through this. In Judaism, a banquet was a frequent symbol for the Messianic age. Marriage was also used as a metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel as well as the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And so you could argue that a wedding banquet could symbolize the intimacy of the divine human relationship and the marriage between heaven and earth. So what is the gospel? What's the good news all about? John's answer might be, the gospel is about a wedding banquet at which the wine never runs out and the best is saved for last. Let me say that again. The gospel is about a wedding banquet at which the wine never runs out and the best is saved for last. Methodist Bishop Will Willimon says this about how Sunday mornings uh, should be a preview of this. He says, church on Sundays 
is meant to be the party before the party. The bash that lasts an hour on Sunday to get us warmed up so that we're one day able to fully obey Jesus and party with God and our neighbors forever. Have you ever thought about the church or uh, your small group or your Sunday school class uh, the kingdom of God as, as a party? And Jesus is the heart the life of that party. <laughs> Jesus wants the party to keep going, to not end. And guess what? Jesus wants us to have fun and to not be bored. <laughs> Too many Christians are bored and rigid and stiff. And then everybody sees him and they're like, I want no part of that, whatever that is. Back in the ancient world, Bacchus was the god of wine and many people worship Bacchus. Um, Adam Hamilton says the only problem with Bacchus is that when taken to the extreme, Bacchus can change us for the worse. And that he can lead us to alcoholism and to materialism and to sexual addiction and to superficiality. You ever been to a cocktail party or a reception where you just wish somebody would have a conversation with you about something of substance? But Jesus, on the other hand, offers us fullness of life. And so if, if we, like the servants, do what Jesus tells us to do, then we too can have fullness of life. And Jesus is showing us that the kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet where we are with other people that we love and the wine never runs out and the best is saved for last. Now there may be other reasons why John decided to put this miracle at the beginning of the gospel, but my guess is that he was setting the stage and sending a message of who Jesus is and what life and the kingdom of God is all about. And if we recognize the purpose of John's gospel, and remember that's stated in chapter 20, these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing in him you may have life in his name, then we can find a much deeper meaning in life that gives us purpose, that gives us community, that gives us friendship, and that we can come to experience fullness of life in his name. But that will only happen if we make Jesus the center of our lives and we don't let all the other things crowd him out. It will only happen if we remember that he shows us the way to living a life of meaning and purpose. And it's up to us as we study these gospels to listen and to follow. Amen.